welcome to the Wiggly Podcast. We're recording this show. Well, it's our last show, really, from Oregon, isn't it, Phil? Well, it will be, sadly. I'm Heather from Wiggly Wigglers. And I'm Carmel Phil. We've had a great couple of weeks in Oregon, thanks to Dennis and Martha, who organised the whole trip for the BASP, the British Association of Sea Producers. And special thanks to our hosts, Donald and Donna from Corvallis. He's got an amazing seed cleaning plant, hasn't he, Phil? Well, the whole operation is highly impressive. The farms in the Willamette Valley seem to be, by and large, quite large, by our standards, certainly very large, and they're very vertically integrated, so they produce the crop, process it, market it, and sell it. And their operation uh, with Cousin Michael is uh, very, very impressive. And we even saw one farm, Larry's farm, that had had a few issues with his transportation of crops. Well, he got into what sounded like quite a robust and lengthy discussion with the railroad company, and they said that it was uneconomic to maintain the piece of line that served their area where they farm, and he was used to transporting things by railway, notably his wheat, And so, to cut a long story short, he ended up buying the railroad. (laughs) Five miles of railroad. Uh, (laughs) 5.35 miles of railroad, to be precise. But it meant that he, all of a sudden, could sell his crop to merchants outside the valley, where nobody else in the valley could. And that has made him into a window, if you like, onto the outside world. And he charges his fellow farmers a fixed rate for handling the grain but it allows them to realise better prices because they're not selling within the confines of the valley. But it sounds as if uh, it wasn't without expense and heartache but he's a man who obviously enjoys the fact that he's got a piece of railroad and uses it to the full. Now for those of you that are thinking why are they going on about Oregon when they're from Blakemere in Herefordshire in England? We're here on a farm tour and we met up with Donna who's got a flower farm. And for those of you that fancy growing some cut flowers, peonies is a fairly good choice to start with. Um, It was introduced to the UK by the Romans. It's Chinese origin, I believe, and the flowers are just to die for, in my view. They like reasonably heavy soil. They don't mind partial sun. They like shade. So they're quite resilient. And I went along to Donna's farm. Actually, I feel quite inspired for Wigglers to to plant some peonies because they last for ages and ages. And we went and picked the crop for the next morning's farmer's market and she had hundreds of stems ready for cutting so many that she felt that she was able to put some away uh, to extend the crop and it turns out that you can extend your peony crop by easily a month by cold storage so here we are with Donna thank you very much Donna from stems and stuff packing up her peonies to make sure that they last an extra month So, dear listener, I'm with Donna and we're going to pack peonies dry into the cooler. So, what have you looked for, Donna, when you've picked You want them fairly tight, but you want them to what they call the marshmallow stage. So, when you pinch it, it's like... It's like a marshmallow. marshmallow. 
And then you want to take off most of the leaves. At the to, bottom. And you want to lay them on paper because you don't want plastic because that causes bacteria and it starts to rot. So you take off the sides. And you've picked them early morning, haven't you? Early Is that... morning, it's good. But when they, the heat starts, usually you have to pick several times a day just to get them at the right stage because they start to open very quickly when it gets warm. And you've got quite a big patch of peonies, in my view. How many plants, roughly, have you got there? We've got about 450. And I've just seen the most fantastic peony display in your cooler. Yes, we've which been are... for about a week now. Okay, and so we are currently at mid-June. So is that normal for... No, they're a bit late. Why is that? It's been very rainy and cold, but now they're coming all at once. So <laughs> this is a good way to extend the season out. And you don't want the heads touching. You want them side by side. Ah, so we're going top to toe now. Top to toe. And they're about, would they be 15 inches long? Yeah. And how long can you keep them dry in your cold room? Three to four weeks, actually. And then you recut the ends. And the leaves, of course, they look pretty pathetic when they come out. But if they're put into warm water, they rejuvenate themselves and they have about the same base life of about a week after that. So you can extend your cut flower season yes. by at least a month yes. after the end. But usually we don't have to. We do them mostly fresh, straight into the bucket, into the market. Because you have then the expense of keeping the cooler going and the possibility of mold or something coming into it too. And you've got a stand on the side of the road. Yes. And your business school stems. And there's a stand right on the edge of the road on the highway. Yes, self-service. Self-service. And people just pick up their flowers on their way home from work. Mm-hmm. And we live between two universities, Oregon State University and University of Oregon. So we have quite a bit of traffic that comes along because we're right on the river. And it's a much more scenic route between the two cities. And they take their flowers and they just Pay. They pay and they leave me nice notes <laughs> and they leave me coupons for Crest rebates and then they, there's always the one that says, oh, I left you more than enough, so I'll pick it up next round. <laughs> and one gentleman had six different entries one summer of what he owed and what I owed him and I added them all up at the end and he was quite wrong, but he had a good time and so did we, so it was good. And it saves you standing out there. It does. <laughs> And we do most of it through the mark, the farmer's market, but when we have more than enough, it adds to the community and it's just a good thing. And the farmer's market, how often is that? That is on Saturday morning, both in Corvallis and Albany, and a friend helps with that. And then on Wednesday morning now in downtown Corvallis on the riverfront. Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you for letting me stay in your wonderful farm. Uh, it's been brilliant. Thanks Donna, and I then went on and saw Donna's amazing floristry, which is an old barn packed full of goodies like the most lovely vases, old hop buckets and stands, and I then saw a selection of the displays and the arrangements that she puts together. She is contracted to the local hospital to do lots of their conferences and does about 20 weddings a year, and it was Fabulous. Here we go, it's time for a Terry tip. We're at the Hay Festival Wiggly Garden again. We've just had Camilla round, Terry, so Camilla you're. Camilla? Yes, 
Wrig- Wrigley's got the, re- the regal stamp now then, eh? <laughs> you get a worm with the crown. <laughs> Gosh, I wonder what waist they'll wiggle of Camilla's. Oh, hey, it would be interesting, Ooh. wouldn't it? You better <laughs> spare the thought. <laughs> we better move on, haven't we? Um, listen, what about mulch? What I would use, i got a variety of mulch. And again, one of the beauties of mulch is it does help to suppress the weeds. And in these days of conserving water, because we're all told conserve water, but in Wales we don't worry too much, but we still conserve, we still conserve water and mulch is the perfect. But there's a range of mulches against the taller crops and against some of the stuff. I do use my grass clippings in a very, very thin mulch. And they don't go too thick because they come a gooey, green, horrible mass. Just don't a small they layer. burn your crop? Don't no. they burn it? If you just very, very thin layer amongst the tall stuff, and this is mainly amongst runner beans and French beans or broad beans. But again, one of the finest mulches of the lot is the, some of the compost you get from your wormery. That is fantastic. You don't need a great deal of that. You don't need to feed a great deal if you've got that proper mulch because all the nutrients come down. You may water then together with a dilute solution plus what's coming out of the worm, uh, worm mulch. is absolutely fantastic itself. And again, one of the other things to use is good old compost. Stuff that's not necessarily manure-based, but some of your old green stuff, if you've got these composting bins and the good stuff at the bottom, just an inch or two between your plants, you're feeding them, suppressing the weeds, and most of all, you are conserving the water. So it's absolutely crucial to mulch at the appropriate times. Does it matter if your compost isn't too friable to be a mulch? Depends on what you're mulching with it. The, the bigger the vegetable or the bigger the crop, then you take that. The smaller the crop, then you don't want it too big, otherwise it'll swamp the growth of the, of the small seeds. And again, only use mulch on fairly established plants. When little seedlings are going to have done mulching, because this will be too fierce for them, and will, a bit of wind or else will overwhelm them. And again, you have the odd slug will live amongst this. Once the plants are big and strong, then you can mulch with almost anything. Thanks, Terry. Phil, any highlights of the week that you've missed out? Well, there have been many highlights, too many to mention here. The standards of farming of of the people we visited has been fantastic. What has been interesting is to come to somewhere which have got to the point that they've overproduced a crop and then they're having to change. What I mean by that is that they have produced some types of grass, notably Italian ryegrass and tall fescue, to the point that they flooded the market so that they can't afford to sell the crop. The result of that has been that they're having to explore different crops and go back to the idea of farming more of a rotation. Where have I heard this story? I hear you ask, and that was precisely where my interest lay, that these farmers are going back to using livestock, they're planting things like filbert orchards, they're looking for alternatives because they're not convinced that just religious production of assorted grass seeds is the way forward for them. In Europe at the moment we're suffering a severe shortage of grass seeds so for us that element of our rotation is quite a good thing but it does give you a lesson that this idea of chasing what happens to be flavour of the moment at that moment doesn't necessarily work and some sort of balance is important and in amongst that we met a number of farmers who are engaging in the US government's version of what we would call environmental schemes. They're farming those as part of their rotation. We met a a fabulous chap, uh, Mr Gilmore, who had set aside, if you like, uh, had turned over his low-lying wetland and was managing it 
for native species and basically it looked like rough grassland but what was interesting to us was that the scheme under which he did it was very similar to what the white paper that the government is currently proposing i.e. you get paid a lump sum or you get a credit which you can sell to offset the benefits of your piece of ground against a developer or somebody who wants to plough up a piece of ground. And if you want to hear about that white paper, our very own Farmer Phil starred on Radio 4's Farming Today. So if you pop to listen again, you can listen to Farmer Phil on Radio 4. Well, thank you for that tip. No bobs. It was interesting to see a scheme like that working. It was one of several schemes that we saw, and there are different ways of doing it, but essentially it concreted that piece of land into a wildlife situation for 30 years. The idea being that the next generation could, if they wanted to, do something different. There are all sorts of different ways of doing it, but it seemed clever, and he got the most fabulous blue Cadillac. He had, he had, but not from the scheme, I hasten to add. <laughs> he had it as a small, as a young student, and he kept it perfectly for years and years and years. One of the farmers that we met in amongst these huge areas of grass seed was a farmer who had originally set up a winery and had grown filberts right in amongst all this grass. So let's go over to him now. Thanks for being with yeah, us. Um, yeah. Can you tell me your name and the company name? David Buchanan, and it's Buchanan Farms and then Taiyi Wine Cellars. So we have a, a farm, and then and we raise our own grapes and hazelnuts, and then we have a small winery. Thanks for joining us on the Wiggly Podcast. We're just walking through a filbert orchard, yes, which is hazelnuts in yes. our country. Um, how long have you established filberts, and why are they so good in this region? Well, I planted them in 74, 75, and 76. At that time, nobody, I won't say nobody, but we didn't have too many filbert orchards, but the hazelnut or filbert industry is doing very well right now. Worldwide, people really love hazelnuts because they're so darn good. They're good with chocolate. <laughs> yeah, I know. They make <laughs> all their pureed hazelnuts are wonderful. I, you can put them in so many different dishes, and it just adds to the complexity of what, food. Um, pudding or for lunch? Do you mean? Yeah, savory well, as well. We eat them. Of course, we grow them, so we eat filberts or hazelnuts a lot. We yeah. make it. Uh, some of our main dishes, like we'll we'll make a glaze of hazelnuts over halibut. Oh, that's wonderful! Really, oh, that yeah. sounds fantastic. And how many hazelnuts would you expect to get off each tree or each acre? Well, out of each acre, I was thinking we would get about a ton, a ton and a half. So we can get a pretty good crop. And the price varies, but lately we've been getting about a dollar a pound, which is yeah. really nice. Fantastic. And on your high ground, you've got this wonderful mix of hazelnuts and a winery and on your low ground you've got the most brilliant i've looked over you've got the most fantastic conservation area in a wetland yeah well we've had a lot of good fortune in that we're in a zone where there's a lot of diversity a lot of natural diversity in the willamette valley once i started planting some conservation areas yeah 
we now have 150 species of birds on this farm wow. that I've identified. That That's I've identified. Amazing. But there's more. I just got to learn. I got to learn my birds better. <laughs> Absolutely. Now I've heard that the thing that I must drink, and now I finally tried it on your farm, is Pinot Noir. Yes. yes. Which is a red wine. Yeah. Why is it so special to drink it here in Oregon? Well, the Burgundy region is where these grapes came from, and and the Pinot Noir is Burgundy. It's yeah. the Burgundy grape, and our climate is very, very similar to the Burgundy area, and so we just sort of stumbled on it in the 60s and the 70s, just how it is very related. It's close to the sea. You know, we're only 60 miles from the ocean, so we have a marine kind of environment, and Pinot Noir is a cool climate grape. It doesn't like too hot. It burns out a lot of the flavors. So Pinot Noir and the Willamette Valley go together. Fantastic. Thank you very much. You bet. Thanks to Taiyi Winery, we have tried the most delicious Pinot Noirs ever. It's very good. If you'd like to know more about Wiggly Wigglers, pop to our website www.wigglywigglers.com wigglywigglers.co.uk Thanks very much for listening. Bye from me, Heather, on the west coast of Oregon. And me, Farmer Phil, looking forward to seeing a few Californian redwoods in a few hours' time and Crater Lake perhaps in the next couple of days.